You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. My name is Nat, and I'm your host today. We are so excited to welcome XC Atkins to talk about his new collection, The Desperado Days, and he will be in conversation with Chris L. Terry. I'm going to introduce you to them in just a second, and then we'll have a little reading and some conversation. XC Atkins is the author of The Desperado Days and Grace Street and Other Stories. He is an alumni of Virginia Commonwealth University. His work can be found in Akashic Books, Richmond Noir, Tusculum Review, Paper Darts, and many other magazines and journals. Atkins presently lives and bartends in Los Angeles. And he will be in conversation with Chris L. Terry, the author of the novel Black Card about a mixed race punk bassist with a black imaginary friend. NPR called Black Card hilariously searing and listed it as one of the best books of 2019. Terry's debut novel, Zero Fade, was on the best of 2013 list by Slate and Kirkus Reviews, and Terry was born in 1979 to a Black father and white mother. He lives in Los Angeles, where he teaches creative writing and is currently editing Black Punk Now, an anthology of Black punk writing and comics with Afropunk founder James Spooner. His recent writing has appeared in Pitchfork, Stereogum, Razor Cake, Very Smart Brothers, The Root, Catapult, and the LA Land magazine. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. And XC, do you want to start us off by reading a little something? Sure. Um, right. So this is a um, story that's inside uh, the Desperado days. Um, uh, this book, of course, is published by Transfer Books um, out of Grand Rapids, Mich uh, Michigan. Um, uh, Albin Fisher uh, runs this press. Um, this was actually a story that was published with his magazine before it was um, included in the book. Uh, so I just wanted to preface it with that. And um, yeah, it's called A, Cu a, cool, Cu uh, a cool Cucumber. Uh. I worked with this guy. He was a real nice guy. Fresh from out of town, tall, handsome, long blonde hair, a real big, a real big magnet. He was married, weird for a young guy. A lot of us couldn't wait to see who she was. I guess we had big expectations. It wasn't fair, but most of us were pretty judgmental, jaded, still running around being assholes. Sometimes a new guy would give me rides to work. He wanted to fit in. And I took advantage of that the same way it had been done to me and all before me and all to come. He drove a used Civic hatchback, paint job chipping, muffler loud as fuck. I didn't care. I liked attention, especially if it was disruptive. My wife is coming in to eat tonight, the new guy told me. Fuck yeah. With who? Solo. We'll roll out the red carpet, baby. The staff got ready for the night. We went over the specials in detail and practiced pitches. Discussed specific guests with special needs, big parties, what time the pops would come, and our last reservation of the night. Tish gave a quick presentation on a new Loire Valley wine we'd added. The night came as furious as ever, and the team was tight, completely prepared. We were like a pirate crew. Everyone was certain. Everyone knew the hit of the tide and how to roll with it. We all felt like killers. 
So even if we weren't best friends, we felt like we knew each other better than best friends in a different but still intimate way. Because, and I realized how dramatic it is to say it like this, it felt like our lives were on the line. The margin of error was so small. No one wanted to be the weak link. The weak link didn't last long here. We had to all be completely dependable. The money was the best some of us would ever make in our lives. That's why it was so damn hard to leave. My wife's at table 10, the new guy said, get a lean into my ear as I was putting my order in. I looked over, I sized her up quickly, like you do in our business. She checked out, thin nose, black hair styled like she jumped straight out of a pinup calendar, a blouse that showed her arms plastered with tattoos and plenty of cleavage, but not in a distasteful way. But it was a lot. Yeah, the new guy was a certified stud, but she was something else and she knew it. We were introduced. I took her hand and repeated my name. She didn't say a word. She didn't have to. Maybe that was the point. She was only shown the drink menu. The food was going to just be sent out. We did this often for people who came in to eat, usually only for people with big, big money. We'd sort of become known for it. The group would sit down and the spokesperson would say, we know you're, we're supposed to trust you. Here are some things we know we want. Here are some things we'd like to stay away from. Send us food until we tell you to stop. Nine times out of 10, we blow them out of the water. I could see the allure, the delight and surprise, decadence, and we were confident because we knew how good our product was. The size of the bill that would come out at the end could look like a month of rent. So it paid to have friends like us or even better, a, signif a significant other because we also had the power to cancel out the bill. We gave his wife the red carpet. Everyone came over to introduce themselves at some point, dropping off food, describing them in full and articulate detail. And she was a cool cucumber with every one of us, not snobby, just a touch of the ice queen. I didn't take it in any sort of bad way. She didn't owe me shit. A couple hours went by, the restaurant was slowly starting to chill out. She was ending like a champion. A seared sliver of foie gras on a warm ball of nigiri, assisted by a glass of sauternes, bliss. Her eyes fluttered, beautiful eyelashes. The moment in the matrix where the program causes the tiny explosion between the woman's legs. I almost felt perverted for watching this exact moment with the guest, but it was a moment you wanted to relive as many times as possible while you were still on this green earth. I was at the bar picking up something when his wife was on her way out. They hugged at the door. She saw me over his shoulder. She gave me a cool nod and breezed out, light as a feather. She have a good time? I asked the new guy. Blew her mind. We've high-fived. I could tell how proud he was, and he ought to be. I was happy for him in a lot of ways. It was the end of the night and we were finishing up doing our side work. We sat next to each other, polishing silverware. Joni was vacuuming at the end of the restaurant, a strangely comforting buzz. The sushi guys were cleaning their station, wrapping up the fish, wiping down their cutting boards. Mitch was behind the bar taking inventory. The tranquility had settled over the restaurant. How did y'all meet? I asked the new guy. I was visiting Seattle. That's where she was living at the time, working in a bar. I was in a hostel next door. We hit it off. I ended up staying there for weeks just to be around. I was probably pretty annoying at first, but she finally said yes to a date. Things kept growing. I persuaded her to travel to Hawaii with me somehow. That's where we got married. That's crazy. Sounds like it happened fast. It did. I was surprised myself. I just didn't want anything else. Couldn't imagine being somewhere without her. I'm really lucky. 
there was a way he said it, how honest he was maybe, that made me feel real sad for him. I couldn't figure out why that was. So all I said was, geez, that's great, man. Another day, another dollar. We got through service. The new guy was really taking to it fast. He was a quick learner, which was really great in this environment. This wasn't a good place for someone to have to tell you something more than twice. Feel like grabbing a drink after work? I knew he'd say no. He wasn't really a drinker. He wasn't really a bar type either. He liked to go to the gym after work. He worked out a lot. He was sort of a health freak. He was very popular with the ladies who dined in the restaurant. He'd always be popular. No, man. Thanks, though. You know me. Got to hit the gym before the wife gets home. She works this late? A lot more lately. New job. The manager came by and handed us our tips for the night. I took the large wad of cash and shoved it in my pocket without counting. I folded my polishing rag, standing up. I slapped a new guy on his broad back. Have a good night, amigo. You going out? Got a howl, baby. Go get him. I went to my bar. I probably went to this bar five nights out of the week. It wasn't on my side of town, but the truth was I had no business being on my side of town in the first place, and all the neighbors knew it. I tried to make it so that I only slept over there, and a lot of nights I didn't even make it to do that. I wasn't doing a lot of good with all the money I was making, which, of course, would be something I'd regret for the rest of my life. But, hey, can't take it with you, right? Why pay off some student loans when I could sit at the bar with a bunch of dipshits, drink Budweiser, and shout at people I'd never meet through a television screen? But the truth was, I was beginning to understand I was wasting my life. It was the same group of us almost every night hunkered over the counter. And if any of us were ever missing, we were almost jealous. They had to be doing something important not to be here, right? It'd come to feel like we were just at another job, the job after the job. And none of us realized we could just go home. We could just do something else, sleep, save our money, build a shelf, write a book. I took a shot of whiskey. A couple walked into the bar. I knew both of them. Only one of them surprised me. The guy came up to me right away. He was a regular too, younger than me, a pretty enthusiastic fella. I liked him fine. We shook hands. Hey, bud, how you doing tonight? I'm doing, brother. I'm doing. I was looking past him to the girl. He must have picked up on that. Oh, this is my girlfriend, Wanda, this is Levy. Hi, Levy, Wanda said monotone. We shook hands. This time, she did say her name, different than before. Of course, this was a different kind of meeting than before, and we both knew it. This time, I was quiet. I just stared at her. She bit her full ruby lip ever so slightly. You just hanging out tonight, Lev? Yeah, man, you see it. Word, well, we're going to grab a drink. Maybe we'll join you. Yeah, sure, Haas. They went to the middle of the bar where Crow was making some drinks. My friend stood there chatting with him. Wanda looked back at me and gave me that cool nod once again. I left a little while later. They were outside smoking. I didn't act rushed or anything. I said adios to them as I passed by, my hand up. He waved. I got another nod from her. Real cool cat, totally composed. I don't know if you could be taught that. She was that good. I went back to my side of town and had a hard time getting to sleep, but I finally did. The next day at work, the new guy was in there early, stalking. When he saw me, he gave me dap. Our hands smacking together sounded good in an empty restaurant. How'd last night go, he asked me. It went. You? It was good. Was at the gym for a couple hours. My old lady ended up just crashing at her co-workers. She was out so late working. Huh, I said. She's a hard worker, maybe works too hard. I hope we can go on vacation soon. She deserves one. 
Yeah, I said, rubbing my chin. You okay, Levy? He asked me. I looked up at him. He was a lot taller than me, a lot younger too, fresh face, full of optimism and hope. I realized he still had plenty of time. I nodded to him. Yeah, I'm good. Let me get started on side work. He smiled and turned back, stocking the wine. I sighed. Then I draped my black button up on the back of a chair and started setting up the restaurant. All right. What is going on with that couple? Man. <laughs> yeah. I I like those, I like the kind of the idea of the mystique of the guy who doesn't hang out. It's kind of like, what's up with this guy? Is he, he's, he's different. Does he think he's better than me? Um, and how that kind of carries into the bar after too, that line about if any of us were missing, we were almost jealous. I remember yeah. that feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weird culture to be in, um, right? Being like, you know, a, a bar fly, I guess, and almost feeling like um, like you are supposed to be there, like you like you owe something to this place. And when you're missing, people are like almost incredulous in a way. Um, <laughs> but it's I've realized, you know, uh, through life and just talking to people that, you know, that's as as normal as it feels to be a part of that. Um, people really. It's like any kind of subculture, I, I think, maybe, where it's like people don't think that you can just exist there. You know, like I was talking to a chef one time and he was just like, anybody who just goes to a bar by themselves, like, they got to be like a, 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 an alcoholic. And I was like, that's such a crazy thing to say. Um, because, you know, on one hand, like, yeah, maybe. But also, like... It, it, it can be a club just like anything else, you know, it could be like, you know, you spend your time at a bowling alley, you spend your time at a, in a book club, you spend your time, you know, uh, playing a sport. Um, but uh, yeah, that being said, it's a, it's a different type of world. And I, um, I like to show as many worlds as possible in this book. Yeah. It also that, I remember kind of a similar attitude from coming up in the punk scene. Like people are going there to be around the other people at the show more than they're going to see the band. Oh, for sure. Time. For sure. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, I remember that world for sure too. And um, a lot of times people would just roll up without even knowing who's playing, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. if you knew who was playing, extra points. But <laughs> um, yeah, you just wanted to be a part of a scene, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, you going to the show? Yeah, who's playing anyway? Tell tell me about uh, getting a, having this kind of connection to a place to you know either as an employee of a restaurant or like as a regular at a bar. Like, how how is that formed? How, how what kind of relationship can that even be? You know, if you're working somewhere, it it can feel kind of cruel sometimes, but you can also feel like it's it's part of you. Oh yeah, big time. I mean, you hear this all the time. And, and I, you know, I don't know how this is so much in other uh, types of industry, but you hear this all the time in restaurants where an owner or somebody who's giving you the pep talk wants to say, um, well, we're a family here. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, you think that's such a great thing to hear <laughs> because 
You know, I mean, as human beings, we all, you know, unless you're just really that lone wolf, a lot of us do want to be a part of a family, you know what I mean? Um, higher frequencies, depending on where you are with your own individual fucked up family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so especially if, you know, a person who's moved around a lot like myself, you, you get hired into a restaurant or something like this, and that's where you're spending your time besides your home or, you know, uh, wherever it is that you choose to go after you get off work. And these people, for all intents and purposes, do become sort of like a, a family unit. You do have to depend on these people. You do have to trust these people in, in some type of measure. So, uh, you know, um, for better or worse, and trust me, it can get worse. Like, you know, you, you, you form these relationships and, and um, you almost have to teach yourself to be realistic with your expectations of this quote unquote family you're becoming a part of because you can begin to uh, put those expectations on these people and it's that's where you can get into trouble um, because at the end of the day you'll find out they're not your family and um, you know you, you can't really fire your family I mean you can you can say I'm just not going to come home for Christmas anymore or whatever it is that you want to do but you know, your mother's always going to be your mother. Your, your brother's always going to be your brother. These people that you're working with, you know, you, you'll find out uh, they won't always be there for you. So that can, I mean, some of them can always be there for you. Some of them will be your best man or become your wife or, you know, I mean, uh, and then that brings whole other problems into your life or, or, or solutions. It's, it's crazy. So I yeah. don't know if I answered your question, but. You, you did. Yeah, I've definitely seen that where like a, a breakup in the in the back of the house uh, means that we need to hire somebody new. Somebody Ooh. quit. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a funny, uh, I saw like a tweet or something last year that was like, boss, the boss says we're like a family here. And the, the response was, so you mean that we're dysfunctional and abusive? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 100% bullseye. That's it. It's, it's really, when it comes down to it, it's almost a manipulation tool. You know, it's like, it's like, this is how we're going to get you to feel some type of loyalty or, or like obligation to this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even more so, I feel like outside of California, um, you know, you go somewhere where like, you know, people, you know, I, this is, this is a, kind of a controversial take, but, um, you know, in a lot of parts of this country, uh, you know, there's the work ethic is something where it's like, okay, this is a defining point. Like this is something that shows who I am as a person Mm -hmm. and employers will, um, you know, can take advantage of that. Uh, and, and it's kind of different here in California where it's like, no, I'm obligated to a 30 minute break where I'm only going to work six hours or this, that, and the third. And it's like, it's, it's a, it's a funny thing to look at. Um, but that being said, uh, I probably do. I, I probably would say I come from that old school mentality as far as our industry, where it's like, you know, I come into work to work. And, um, mm-hmm. 
if that takes me eight hours and 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 busting my ass the whole time then like that's that's who i am you know mm-hmm. um but uh yeah I was, I was talking to a friend who's from the Midwest who moved out here right around when I did. And the, yeah, we're, we're kind of with you. Like, it, it seems like the expectations for employees are often lower here in, in LA. Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned moving around a lot. Uh, and you're kind of, that leads into another question I had is that like, so a lot of your stories, they touch on service industry and restaurant culture. And they're set in kind of smaller or medium-sized cities that have like a vibrant restaurant and bar culture. You know, we got Austin, we got New Orleans, we got Philly. Um, how does it feel to be writing about these places from Los Angeles? Like does, I don't know if it's me, but it, it feels like restaurant culture in that way, like isn't as prevalent here as it is in say Austin or New Orleans. And by restaurant culture, I mean like the people who actually work in restaurants. It feels like there's more of a focus on it in those other places. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. That um, could be off base here. It could just be No, me. no, man. You're, so you're, you're actually really on point with that because you know I remember when I first moved here, um, I would get asked a lot while I was working, you know, it's, and and you can get asked this in any place because there's still people that just think that like working in a restaurant or, or a bar is supposed to just be like your side hustle. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? People still think that like, oh, you must just be supporting yourself to, for, to get through college or you must be working on getting this or, you know, if you're in LA, it's like, oh, you must be an actor, a musician, or some type of artist. And it's like, I, I am an artist, I am a writer, but I am like a bartender, you know? I, I do work in this industry. It's something that I've done for over 15 years. It's something that I'm good at. It's something that I care about. Um, and whenever I'd get asked that question when I first moved out here, I'd be like, you know, they'd be like, so so what else do you do? And I'm like, no, I'm a bartender. This is This is what I do. And they'd be like, oh, shit, we've never fucking met anybody like you. <laughs> you know? Right. And, uh, and, and that was always kind of, you know, I mean, you ask anybody in this industry, that's always kind of a demeaning question, even if it is your side hustle, you know, and, and then you, you know, you have to decide on whether you want to tell this stranger or not, like what you're actually trying to do in your life. And, you know, and, and a lot of people will because they feel like they got to justify themselves and, and prop themselves up and or the other side of that is people get defensive and you know maybe flip on you for that so it's 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 that's a I would I would advise people not to lead in with asking you know what else <laughs> it is that you do uh work working in those other cities that you name though man there's such a culture for it and especially some places like some higher end places or if you work at like a popular bar you tell people where you work, especially if like you're a person in the industry and you're going out, right? If I, if I'm, if I work at this place and then I go to some other bar or something and they'd be like, Oh, you know, they, you, in this culture, we gain a, a sense to see of who has the etiquette. Right. And if, if you just display that, they're like, okay, you must be service industry also. And then you say, yeah, I work here and it's some cool place. And they're like, Oh shit, I love that place. And then, it's like, okay, you know, I'm, I got status now, I got clout, 
I might even be some type of low level celebrity. You know, I've worked at some spots where it's just like, you tell people you work here and they're like, oh my God, let's give this guy a free shot. Like, you know, how can I get the hookup at your place? Like this, that, and the third. And, um, you know, that makes you feel good for sure. Um, those, those places, you know, especially somewhere like Philly, New Orleans, those are like, you know, places where like service industry are very, very important. Um, they are a part of the city. They're part of the whole ecosystem. And um, you have more people doing that type of work there than are doing a lot of other things. And um, it really gives you a, 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 a straight connection into the city because especially like when I lived in New Orleans, I would tell people all the time, like, you know, tourists coming into town, like, you know, they'd be asking you questions at some point. I'd be like, this is what you're supposed to do. You know, you, you talk to your bartender, you talk to your server, whatever, and you ask them questions. They're going to have all the answers for you. They're going to mm -hmm. give you the keys to the city. They're going to give you the places that you want to go. And the place is specifically tailored to you too, right? Because it's like, you know, you only become a regular of a bar or a restaurant if it's your scene, right? So, yeah. You know, like you, if, if you're into, you know, uh, punk, I'm not going to tell you to go to a, a, a sports bar. I'm going to tell you to go to the bars that you're going to be into, the scene that you're going to fit into. And being in the service industry, you, you, you get to know what those places are. And then you can share that wealth with people. Yeah, you're like a concierge. Exactly. I think, I think you really touched on that about in L.A. that... Yeah, like a lot of the wait staff are actors. I remember I moved here. It was like, why is every single like waiter or waitress amazing looking? Oh yeah, they're all trying to be on TV. Exactly. Um, and I've, I've made that like side hustle mistake before because uh, I was even, I was working at startups and people even had like a side hustle there. And I remember I met a dude who worked at Google and I was kind of like, yeah, but what do you really do? And he's like, bro, I, I work at Google. <laughs> 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 like, what the fuck else am I going to do? I'm not trying to like write a book on the side. And I'm, yeah. you know, and I'm, I felt like I was kind of, projecting my own artist POV on this uh, tech bro. <laughs> we didn't end up hanging out too much, but I, that was a lesson learned for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I feel like a lot of your stories, they hinge on a moment when one character's perception of the other one shifts. You know, I'm thinking about like the code switching kitchen worker who talks one way with his boss and the boss sees him with one of his black coworkers. Yeah, I love we that. have that like white airbnb -er who gets robbed. Um, I don't know. What, what, what what attracts you to those moments? Um, I that was something I specifically wanted to do with this book. I had an idea before I even had all the stories that I wanted to just write a book um, based off of this idea that I had, where I was like, I want to. And just carry me out with this, but because it gets, it gets, I, I, I the, the, this is the, the, the core, but very primal, uh, stripped down idea. And that was, I wanted to write a book where I heard a lot of my friends. Hurt <laughs> or heard? Hurt. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what I mean by that is, is like, I wanted to write, a, a, a book of stories about moments where 
um, you see that life isn't black or white. It's not, um, you know, good or bad. It's, it's not these, these one way or the other type things, you know, where it, it was this, this whole idea was based on me as a person growing up and realizing that people are just humans and we're all capable of mistakes. We're all fallible. And um, moments that happen in life where people uh, maybe don't do the quote unquote right thing. Mm -hmm. And does that make them a good or bad person? Or does that just make them a person trying to live in this world, you know? Because, you know, as, a, as my own human being, I do try to do the right thing, but that's just according to my code, right? Yeah. Um, but then also there's been a lot of moments as I've become an adult where I've had to be like, you know, and this is a line that I take from um, my favorite, my, the, you know, the best television show of all time, The Wire. Um, you know, Bunk goes, uh, there you go, giving a fuck where, when it ain't your turn to give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Like that line, I remember hearing that as a, as a kid in college, and I thought it was cool, but I didn't get it yet. And then as I watched that show continuously throughout my life, it, 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 it revealed itself in life, you know? And I was yeah. like, wow, that, you know, I can't, every time I see something that I don't agree with or something that like, you know, I think is one way or the other, or, you know, putting judgment on people. Um, these are things that are going to, can they can hinder you or hurt you or or you know give you unnecessary strife and um so when i say going back to like i wanted to write some stories of, that hurt my friends it's not like i wanted to like physically or, or mentally hurt them it was kind of a thing of just being like you know showing somebody a mirror you know because i think we all have to take a look at ourselves sometimes when we're out in this world being like you know pointing the finger or uh, dishing out judgment, um, and I'm I'm I've been pretty bad about that myself in life, and I'm trying to get better. And I think that we all try to get better about it in life um, if we're doing our due diligence. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, that was that was my idea behind this. And so going to that moment where things kind of shift, like you say, um, yeah, I just you know these weren't even all things that like I came up with. These are these could be just an idea of something that I heard somebody telling a story about, or something I saw on, on in a movie, and uh, and I just wanted to um, take the moment, stretch it out, and see who would relate to it. Sure, sure. Yeah, it it, it seemed like it's it's almost like a moment where yeah, I guess we're like a perception, one person's perception of another person's shift shifts. And I even was thinking maybe that like dovetailed with a lot of the like mixed race identities in the book from our, like the different, from your main characters. Um, that's like a big thread in the book. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's even like the way that these characters are being perceived. Do you see that type of like racial identity perception going along with this, this social stuff? Do they work alongside each other? Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, th there are stories where, you know, I talk about 
race and then there's stories where I don't. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not gonna do, I never wanna do it unnecessarily. Um, you know, um, there are times where, where, you know, it just matters and there's times where it doesn't, you know, it's times where sometimes like this, the story that I just read, it was just, that story was about, you know, a guy looking at a couple mm -hmm. and, and that was it. You didn't need to know anything else really. Um, but then there's stories like, you know, that, that story you mentioned where the guy's at work and, you know, he's talking one way with his coworker and talks another way with his boss and, you kind of have to bring race into something like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's really kind of a thing of like, um, you know, another theme in the book is just multiple worlds, you know, where it's like, uh, you know, me and you were, were mixed people. So mm -hmm. right out the gate, having nothing to do with how we dress, having nothing to do with how, what music we listen to, anything else, we're already two worlds. Yeah. Right? And, and then as you go through life, you just have, you begin to have multiple, multiple worlds. And, um, but the fact that me and you already start off with two, really actually three, you know, we only think it's two in the beginning. And then as we go throughout life, you know, we, and that's been the cool thing about actually meeting you and, and reading your stuff. And I, I want to do that with my book too. It's like, you know, I never, Growing up, I never read anything by mixed people. It was only either white, black, Asian, you know, uh, indigenous. Uh, uh, you know, you didn't have a lot of stories where it was mixed. And when you did, it was, in my opinion, a lot of times really tragic. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I try to, you know, show that in my book and I, I, I wanna, show it in tragic ways, but also like funny ways and sometimes uh, scary ways and, and sometimes whatever ways, you know, just all the ways, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feel woe is me in your book. Um, and I thought that was cool. It is hard to, you know, it can be, you know, having an identity like ours can be complicated. Um, so there is like a big question is how do you, how do you talk about that and even hash that out on the page without having it sound too tragic mulatto-ish to woe is me. Yeah. Do you have any tips for somebody who, uh, who might be interested in exploring this identity in a fresh way or in a way that isn't just going to that like Nella Larson passing tragic mulatto. Some, she's got to die at the end type of. Oh type man. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's like such the trope. I mean, I, I, I picked up on that in college and I actually wrote something about it where I was just like, why do these characters always got to die? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I mean, that's just classic, like bucking against this, um, the stereotype. And um, I encourage that. And um, I, I guess the only way in, in, from my experience is to just seek that out in life, you know, um, mm -hmm. seek out people that, you know, aren't doing the same thing, seek out people that, and, and it's, it's not easy to do, but it is out there and you, you do find them. And um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be exactly you. It can, it can be like a white or a black person that's just trying to be different. And that's enough a lot of times. Uh, you find your tribe. I do believe that. Um, 
I, I feel like you just spend a life searching for that and you, you can get lucky and um yeah I, I that's that's what I would say just in, I encourage people to just keep looking for people who have a like mind cool yeah I, I feel like it's it, things are changing for the better in terms of like culture and taste I remember when I was coming up I'm in my mid-40s and it was kind of like it was weird to be if you were black and you like rock music or if you're white and you like rap music yeah, um, and that was always that was something I was kind of drawn to because it was like people that were crossing cultures and that feels way less unusual now and I think that's wonderful um so yeah the book like and I, I noticed it like race doesn't really come into play until I don't know maybe like six seven eight stories into the book when we have the one about the guy who finds out that his older his half-brother has been using yeah. a white sounding name on his resume yeah that, that, should, that was like a gut punch um and it just added this whole other like layer to what was going on in the book. Uh, I was curious like, about your decision to delve into this subject matter later in the book, not not at the beginning. Like we get we kind of establish the like restaurant culture, service industry stuff, and then we get race a while later. Um, why, why did why did you hold out on us? Oh shit. Um, huh. That's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't know that I felt like I was like deliberately holding out, um, but it's kind of more of a thing where I'm like, um, you know, I, I feel like maybe it was one of those things where I did it subconsciously but in a organic way you know like I feel like if I look back on my life um you know I I grew up on military bases mm -hmm. and when you grow up on a military base and this is something that I'm actually pretty grateful for you know you grow up on a military base everybody's the same sort of you know you're all just mm -hmm. military it's not like that in in america i feel like in america like you know pretty early if you're you're, you're black or you're white or you're or, or, or what you are you know and um and that begins to shape your life and your way of thinking immediately and um i don't know that i did it on purpose but i know that in my life, I, I started off just like as a person and I had to learn these things. And mm -hmm. once I, um, you know, just started going to it like an American public school, that's where I was like, oh shit, like, because I'm this skin color, I'm supposed to act this type of way, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I, I hear you with, you know, I mean, with, you know, being a, a certain shade of skin, like that means that like, oh, it's unusual for you to listen to this kind of music, right? Yeah. And I didn't know that. I didn't grow, I, I grew up not knowing that. So when I did, was informed of these things um, by the time of, uh, you know, I was almost done with middle school, about to start high school, it's kind of late to learn those type of things, you know? And so then you're kind of almost catching up. So, um, yeah. I guess I just wanted to be like, hey, like, let's just sink into some stories. And when it does come up, you know, you're going to almost feel like how I felt, 
you know, coming into American school being like, oh, I'm not supposed to wear Vans. I got to wear like some fly pairs of, you know, Jordans or, or Reebok or whatever the school was, you know, fashion fad was. And yeah, I guess that's where that might've came from. Yeah, it's like the story, um, it kind of naturally mirrors your own experience or the the, uh, the table of contents. Yeah. Cool, cool. And it looks like uh, we're being told we have time for one more question. Um, so we're both, we both have some experience in Richmond. Um, I went to high school and college there. And uh, I know you maybe went to VCU and then stayed for a while after. Yeah. Um, so during the pan, like the height of the pandemic, I know we're still in that shit. Um, a friend of mine from high school from open high in Richmond was going through a divorce. And I swear this turns into like a kind of happy story. Uh, but she was taking these long walks through Richmond, like in the fan district and Randolph and along the river. And like it, she was posting all these pictures of it on Instagram and it low key became like one of my favorite parts of being stuck at home because it was uh -huh. transporting me back there. And I, you know, Beautiful. I'd be like, I remember replying to one of her stories, like I definitely took a piss in that alley in 2001. Um, <laughs> And it made me miss the place. So I'm curious, what do you miss about Richmond? Oh, man. I love Richmond. Um, it's such a great city to, to like, become a person in. Um, you know, because it is a city, but it's, it's not too big. Um, I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time just walking around and, um, I just feel like it's got so much to make you like a whole person, you know? It's diverse, it's got good food, it's pretty, it's got a lot of history, you know, it's got a lot of good and bad things, you know, you can get into, uh, you can get into trouble there. I mean, you can get in trouble mm -hmm. anywhere, but like, it's, it's, um, it's just got so much and uh, there's good people there. And um, they want to uh, they want to make a life there. So I uh, I still have a lot of friends that live there, and they're doing really well, and they're raising families, and you know, um, starting their businesses, running their businesses. And I'm really proud of all of them. And it's a place I feel like I can always go back to. And I just think it's a really underrated, awesome city. When I lived there, it was always supposed to be like you know, there's always articles coming out. Richmond's going to be the next big thing. But that's not the mentality to have. Just let Richmond be Richmond. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's what I love about that place. Cool. Thank you, X. It's been great talking yeah, to you. Yeah, thank you too. I really appreciate it. Always good to talk to you, man. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for such a fun and sort of nostalgic conversation. Had a lot of nostalgia to it. And it, it was fun to listen to. Um, so thank you again to our guests, XC Atkins and Chris L. Terry. You can grab a copy of Desperado Days from Skylight Books or online at skylightbooks.com. Thank you again to our guests. And we hope to see you all in the store soon. Thank you so much, Nat. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>